0: afternoon. I remembered um, as I was writing this talk that yesterday I started a story and I didn't finish it because I went tangentially to definitions of emptiness. So I want to finish the story. Now, if I did finish the story and just have forgotten... (laughs) somebody tell me and I will not repeat it. <laughs> so anyway, um, at this retreat that Jozen and I were both at, um, there was a sense of, um, it's very easy on retreat to kind of notice or fall into a, a very spacious mind and there's uh, some clarity around the uh I could say awareness as emptiness or it's good enough for now so emptiness as let's say as awareness but the knowing of it as empty saw a very very deep core um, pattern patterning egoic patterning selfing patterning that I've worked with for years but this time I saw it really clearly and what I saw about it was that it was empty. There's nothing really to it at all. And in that seeing, as I <coughs> tell you guys over and over again, that if that seeing, if it is seen clearly enough um, and if you've worked with it before or whatever the conditions are, uh, it will dissolve. And this one, which has been my friend for just lifetimes, I think. (laughs) Now, it's never good to say that things are over because the mind is very sneaky, very tenacious, and things get very subtle. But um, it did... uh, something. And, um, and this is kind of what I want to tell you. It, it is working itself out by itself. And what Katagiri would say would be that it's none of your business. When people have insight, if you have insight, you don't want to imagine that you're going to recreate an insight. You just want to be aware that there is an insight. And your job is to try to, and this is not easy, it's hard to figure out, but your job then is to embody, to learn how to live that insight in daily life. That is is your job. That is your work. And it doesn't matter what kind of insight it is. It can be deep or shallow or wide or narrow. It really makes no difference. Sometimes uh, the mind opens up big, sometimes the mind opens up teeny. But what you see is the truth, whether it's big or teeny. And it's very rare, extremely rare, that when people have insight that the self completely drops away. It almost never happens. So this is a lifetime journey. And it's a really good thing because if it weren't, (laughs) what would you do with your life? Um, the Dalai Lama speaks that way. For him, too. It's a lifetime journey. For him, though, it's lifetimes journey. <laughs> that was a joke, no? <laughs> you know, lifetimes, Tibetan. I you know, get it, get it? <laughs> also um, every time we have an insight, or interestingly enough in my opinion, my humble opinion, um, whenever you're involved with real grief, it's also the same thing. Whenever you have a, whenever anything happens in your life that pushes you or squeezes you into the present moment, this is a, this is a good thing. Whether it's from grief or whether it's from some kind of, uh, well, whatever it is, even if it's difficult, if it, if it pours you into the present moment. This is, this is, and if you can take advantage of that and practice in that way, this is an uh, opportunity. So another thing I talked about yesterday was this business about no past and no future. This whole, um, I'm sorry, this whole business, like what I was talking about the other way, the other day all I want to do now is chop wood and carry water. The concomitant part of it is, is that I find all of this rather funny. You know, all of these are just pointers, they're just words that are pointing somewhere, that are hopefully pointing you to something about yourself that is beyond your small, conditioned, Self-concerned mind. So, if an insight pushes you into the present moment, what we're saying is there's no past and future. So, that's what I was talking about the other day: that in the present moment, <clears throat> and, and, and in a way, this is, this is the, what do I want to say? This is kind of the teaching of Zen in a way. We are thrown into the present moment, wholehearted activity, where we find if you're in pain, this was told to me by, um, what's his name, Tasahara. See, when you, when you practice in sangha, you're practicing with people who are doing the same practice and they help you. So I was, Jay, that was his name, and he has a brain tumor now. Anyway, Jay, um, I forgot his last name. I was in the shop, he was working in the shop, and I was miserable, like I was, Tazara. <laughs> Somerville, Jane, no that's Annie Somerville. Anyway, Jay, so he kind of, you know, took me aside and he said, you know what really helps, Tia? He said, if you just pay attention to the, to the details... <coughs> the details of what you're doing. You know, it will help you. And of course he was right. If you are completely 100% in the present moment, and if you give up your attachment to your particular suffering, then you can find solace in the activity of the present moment. It's a refuge if you're in pain in the details of the present moment. Yeah, Basically what's happening is like even if you do this in zazen, not too much though. For those of you who tend to be concentrators, not too much. Um, If you concentrate in the present moment, in the detail of your breath, coming, exhaling, the gap at the bottom when the mind is only awake and the inhalation, and then the turn at the very top, and then exhalation again. This kind of attention to the breath when you're sitting (coughs) raises energy, because concentration raises energy. And in daily life, this kind of concentration, if you're suffering, it's a solace, it's a place of refuge. And if you're not suffering, then the present moment is a place of joy and celebration of presence. Which is not to say that the present moment is always pleasant, but oftentimes in our practice, even when things are difficult, if you're really (coughs) present there's very much a difference between suffering that difficulty and simply being present in pain. So Trumpa used to say all the time, he used to say, speed kills. And he was referring to this kind of thing. That if, we're, if you let the mind go here and there in all kinds of different distractions, that kind of speediness is killing your life because you're not actually able to be there for what is happening for you deeply, wholeheartedly in this moment. And then the other thing I said was I was talking about um, the wholeness or oneness. I think I said wholeness. I was talking about wholeness? Wholeness. And I found something the other day in a book <coughs> from, by, by Okamura. I was talking to you about it in terms of, remember the bathroom, that you don't clean the bathroom to clean the bathroom. No future and past, you're just present in the moment fully. Are you getting it now? It it <laughs> I've been talking about this for years, about work practice in Zen. But still nobody comes to our work practice retreats. I have no idea why. No? Should come to this practice. Um So this sense of in in Zen very much our way is to understand that this moment is eternity. Not eternity stretching out like this, but eternity completely now and then now and then now. This is what he said. So there's nothing preparatory that you're doing for the next moment in which you're going to get better or in which the project is going to be done or in which you're going to understand something or another. There's no preparatoriness in Zen. So he says, this is about the kitchen. I thought this would be good. We cook not to feed people but to cook. When we cook, cooking itself is our practice. It should not be preparation for something else. Cooking is in itself a perfect action if it is cooking just for the sake of cooking. When the food is ready, just offer it. Offering is not the result of cooking as a preparation. Offering is just offering and at that moment becomes our whole life. And the life of the universe. And in the same way, eating is just eating. Each moment is perfect in itself, not a step to the next one. Each moment is one with eternity. This is the attitude we should maintain. And the same is true in zazen. When we sit zazen, in our zazen, you're not, please don't try in zazen. Except, if your mind is not yet willing to be present, if it's slipping away all the time, then you actually do have to try, you have to make enormous effort to bring the mind back at each each time the mind wakes up to itself, that it's been gone, at that moment please bring it back. That is the only chance we have of then using the mind, which is a tool. It's no good for understanding life or relationship or meaning or anything like that. It's a tool, the small mind. Just bring it back to be present. And then you can do RAIN, you can be, you know, have continuity of of awareness. Without the mind being present, none of that is possible. So in that way you do make effort. But once the mind is present, Chikantaza is about being life, not trying to do anything. It's very difficult because we always slip into grasping. So this is kind of what I wanted to say because I find this really interesting and neat. So in zazen, when we are without a limited attitude, when we're not all the time me my problems, my awakening, my path, my practice, my self-concern, my self-centeredness, if we can allow that, it's time, but then allow that to be seen in the large, vast, awake mind that we are, then that is eternity in this present moment. Like Blake, didn't you say something like that? Eternity, something or another? No? Great. Eternity in a grain of sand? Something? Something? When that happens there is, there is no limit. The universe is sitting now, see I was going to say, the universe is sitting with us But that's not true. The universe is sitting as us. See, we're not sitting as the universe. The universe is sitting as us. And when we're awake, when the mind is awake, when you allow your original mind to be there, it's ironic, you know. In this little small itsy-bitsy, teensy-weensy container of my body, this particular body, right, the entire universe is waking up to itself. It's incredible. The universe needs form to wake up to itself. So us, this little less than an ant, less than a speck, we're less than a nothing in the incredibility of the universe. And yet, here it is, the truth of it is that the universe is here, now, in each of us, as each of us, waking up to itself. The universe knowing itself as a flower. Universe knowing itself is a piece of garbage, and we take our lives lightly, we throw them away, take it for granted. Out of the, I said this the other day, out of the billions and billions and billions of possible people that could have been here, no, it's each one of us gifted just for a moment, to live as the universe. (laughs) What a joke. (laughs) To live by vow, to live not by your conditioned mind, but to live with intention beyond the little selfishnesses, to live by vow, is to live as the universe. This is practice realization. This is our way. Sato Zen Buddhism. So vowing is not like a promise to to be good. (laughs) Although, you know, that's not a bad idea. We want to be good, don't we? We all want to be good. (laughs) Let's be good. We all want to be like our head student says, you know, we want to be authentic. When you are you, Zen is Zen. That's what Tsukiroshi said. We want to be authentic so that we can be lived in the truest deepest, most connected. Connected it is even too much. Two things connected. No. So it's not a, a it's a it's a rudder it's a container but more than anything else on the deepest level vow is a manifestation of our true being that's what it is. And we say Buddha, Dharma, Sangha. The Buddha mind, your mind, the Dharma, the teaching, the Sangha, the people who also are living a life, an intentional life, an awake life, who can help each other remember why we're vowing in the first place who can see each other a reflection of our true nature. Because we're in a space that's trying to help us remember. Buddha is important. Dharma is important. Sangha is important. That's our way. Dogen, when he was dying, he wrote Buddha, Dharma, Sangha on a pillar. And he would get up whenever he had enough strength and he would walk around the pillar taking refuge. I take refuge in awakening. I take refuge in the teaching. I take refuge in the community, in the Sangha to go for refuge to the buddha I can't get through this talk <laughs> I don't know So When you feel like that, when you feel the gratitude for Buddha himself and all of the people in the lineage and the teachings that turned out to be (laughs) completely true. (laughs) And I've been fighting with him, you know, for so long. (laughs) It's great. You have to. You have to fight with him. Otherwise, if you don't make them yours, they're worthless. Worthless. Um, when you, when you um, feel, um, then you, you naturally take a bodhisattva vow, impossible, impossible vows. Because we're not doing this for a goal, you know. We actually don't feel like okay. I'm just going to be like the little bunny, the, dark, the, the uh, battery bunny. You know, I'm going to say this one, then I'm going to say that one. I'm going here, I'm going to say that one. I'm going to say that one. I'm going to say that one. <laughs> save that one. <laughs> no, it's just an intention. It's just a very deep intention that you, you know because of your own freedom. You want everybody to be free of suffering. You know, you do want to walk through every dharma gate there possibly is. You do want to end all grasping and desire because you know where that goes. And you really do want to become, you know, you want to walk, you want to become you know, the best person you can possibly be. You want to understand as deeply as you possibly can. These are intentions. So we have three great bodhisattvas that we emphasize and then I think, I mean, actually, in all Buddhisms. All Buddhisms are wonderful. Every lineage, fabulous. They're just different. And each one, you know, okay, stop talk about that. I want to go to the wonderful, incredible bodhisattvas that we have. (coughs) You know them all. Bodhi, awake. Sattva, being. Awakening being. Avalokiteshvara, the listener, the one who can hear the cries of the world, who is willing to listen to the cries of the world. You are Avalokiteshvara, listening, being willing to listen first to your own cries, and then you will be willing to listen to the cries of the world. You don't listen to your own cries first, you cannot genuinely listen to the cries of the world. Samantabhadra, this, I think, is Reb's favorite Bodhisattva. Samantabhadra, he says, he pronounces the H, means universally good. Universally good. Samantabhadra is the Bodhisattva of skillful means and uh, is mentioned a lot in the Lotus Sutra and especially his ten vows which if I had time I would read to you. But meantime I want to talk about Manjushri Bodhisattva on the altar. In our room, in this room, we have, this room is actually two rooms. It's a zendo or a room to do zazen and it is a Buddha hall in which to do service because we don't have two separate rooms. So in the Buddha hall, there is the Buddha for the Buddha hall. But the most important one, the little statue, is the one really belongs in this room. Manjushri. The Bodhisattva wisdom, Prajna wisdom. And you see he's holding a sword. See, but he holds a sword. I can't do it. He holds it here. He holds a sword with two fingers up in the air. He's holding the sword really gently. But he, do, he does have a sword. <laughs> and the sword is there to cut through the small mind. And his name is translated as gentle glory. Isn't that lovely for a wisdom guy with a sword? <laughs> gentle glory. Glory with an L <laughs> with, with an L. Glory. Yeah. Okay. Thank thank you for asking. Can I ask a question about the male and female? Because the way you're the male, I mean, you mentioned them are all male, and we know Prashna sometimes is seen as female. Yes. So I'm just wondering if that's just I mean I know they're depicted as men, but I'm just wondering if we could speak to the male as female. Prajna, Prajnaparamita is different than Manjushri wisdom. It's a different one. But Prajnaparamita is all over as a woman. And um, yes, I did say he's, and I noticed when I said he's. But um, I think of all of them, it might be Samantabhadra, maybe, as a woman, but I, I, they're he's in the tradition. Um, it's good of us to, as, as is happening now in the lineage. Uh, women are trying to find who of those are women. And in Tibetan Buddhism, lots of women, dakini and yoginis, much more integrated at that level of wisdom. They accept women as wisdom but they have a lot of difficulty practically with holding up women in their uh, their lineage, their day-to-day lineage is not so great with women. They're working on that now. The one that we do, I think, know now is Prajnatara who is Bodhidharma's teacher, we think actually is a woman. So now I'm saying that her, it's a she. Wisdom, Tara. Wisdom, Tara is a woman image and Prajna is wisdom, so she probably, they think she's a woman. So here are some names. I thought they would just be fun. I want to read you two things. In the avatamsaka sutra, um, the avatamsaka is a sutra to read and just let your mind, it, 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 stumbling over it. When you read the avatamsaka sutra, the conceptual mind closes down. You cannot read it with your conceptual mind because this is what it's like. And it's gigantic. And as you read it, you just go, okay, you give up. The mind gives up and you're just reading the words. So, I'm going to read you some names, and it can go on for pages like this. <laughs> it's great. But it, it is a story. Story happens. But in the middle of the story, there's this. And these are all names of bodhisattvas. Supreme lamp of universal virtue, light of inexhaustible virtue of universal purity. These are people. Mark of universal light, great brilliance of the light of the moon reflected in the ocean, undefiled treasury of light of oceans of cloud-like sounds, born of wisdom and adorned with virtue, great light of sovereign virtue, sun banner of clouds of universal knowledge, light banner of fragrant flames, deep beautiful sound of great enlightened virtue, banner of flowers of the top knot of universal jewels pleasing voice of universal awareness, greatly persevering with indestructible courage, banner of swiftness of the sun, light of the flowers of the polar mountain, pure sounds of clouds, song of the thunder of great trees, auspicious eye of intense flame, exquisite gem star banner, joyfully uttering sublime sound, sandalwood tree light, lotus luminosity, thunder banner, Amazing. (laughs) Let's go around saying that. Mm -hmm. Hello, deep, beautiful sound of great enlightened virtue. How are you today? And the other thing I want to read to you, and then we're done. Koban Chino, uh, Atokawa Roshi, does anybody know him at all or even of him? Good, great. Koban Chino was a Zen master, a quiet, shimmering, Effanescent cloud of a man ungraspable you couldn't somehow I don't quite understand how it was but that was his feeling you couldn't quite he was there but somehow not quite I mean he was very there it's not like he wasn't there he was there (laughs) very there but he was light like like that. He was like shimmering energy. It's a beautiful man. He was raised as an aristocrat, Japanese aristocrat. And um, his calligraphy is like that. It's beautiful calligraphy. Anyway, when um, Suzuki Roshi came to the United States, he asked Koban to come and help him. And he did. And then when Suzuki Roshi was finished he couldn't take care of Palo Alto. Palo Alto was a place where Suzuki Roshi gave all those talks that later became Zen Mind Begin His Mind, which is the Bible. And he asked Coban to come down and take care of his community. And that's where I went just before I went to Tassajara. That's when... I don't know if you guys know, but... I, I won't even say it, but anyway, okay. So I was down there and um, was in the early 70s. He was the fellow, C- Coburn was a fellow who um, officiated at Stephen Jobs' uh, wedding. Now he's famous, right? Now you think he's famous? More than he's just a Zen master, but he officiated at his wedding. Now you think he's something special? <laughs> 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 God. This is Coben's statement about the precepts. The main subject is how to become a transmitter of actual light. Life light. Practice takes place to shape your whole ability to reflect the light coming through you and to generate, to regenerate your system so the light increases its power. Each precept is a remark about hard climbing or maybe climbing down. You don't use the precepts for accomplishing your own personality or fulfilling your dream of your highest image. You don't use the precepts in that way. The precepts are the reflected light world of one precept which is Buddha's mind itself which is the presence of Buddha. Zazen is the first formulation of the accomplishment of Buddha existing. The more you sense the rareness and value of your own life, the more you realize that how you use it, how you manifest it, is all your responsibility. We face such a big task. So naturally such a person sits down for a while. It is not an intended action. It is a natural action. So we have uh, the rest of the day and then tomorrow morning and then tomorrow afternoon we will be privileged to be the support of and the witness of Ian taking his vows. And as he does that, you in your own heart can take your own vow. Can reflect on what what that might be. And then tomorrow when he's taking his public vow, you can take your own Personal vow. So let's continue singing together. Thank you for listening to this podcast offered by the Brooklyn Zen Center. Our programs are given free of charge and made possible by the donations we receive. For more information on supporting Brooklyn Zen Center, please visit the giving section of brooklynzen.org.